So just out of curiosity, I know like nobody said, yes, I'm a fan of Instagram, but just out of curiosity, how many of you are on Instagram? Yeah, the vast majority of us. I wonder if that's why we don't get so pumped about Instagram. It's like it's just a normal part of like all of our lives pretty much, right? And I, I know in a multi-generational church like Mosaic is, not everybody is on Instagram. So let me give you just kind of a snapshot of what it is. Uh, Evan, you can go ahead and put the first photo up there. I'll give you kind of a before and after. Instagram is this app on your phone, if you have like an iPhone, smartphone. And you can take a photo and use all kinds of special effects, filters, different things uh, to, to uh, make the photo look a lot cooler, basically. So here, oh, we had it. So you kind of get an idea here of what's, what's possible, right? You have the before and then after all of a sudden it becomes like, goes from this blasé photo to a pretty artistic photo, right? And so you can throw up the next one where you kind of get a feel for, right? Those are like the photos I grew up on, you know? Everything is just kind of like, oh, yeah, this is how it is. But then all of a sudden, boom, you use Instagram. Right, in a few short minutes, a few, uh, filter or two, all of a sudden, you've got this really cool uh, really cool photo. And so this thing has been like blown up like wildfire. Again, most of us have it on our phones. Uh, just over a year ago, it was bought by Facebook for a billion dollars. Billion dollars. And mind you, last I read, it has not profited a dollar yet. All right, so it's not like even a profitable business. It's something that's so important, they want it for a billion dollars to help the other things that they're doing. But it's become so widespread, it's incredibly, uh, incredibly popular. So I love Instagram because I have no photographic skills whatsoever. And Instagram allows people like me to make my life look a lot better than it actually is and a lot cooler than it actually is. I like Instagram. I've got really cool photos of myself, of my family, of my friends, of our church that I could not otherwise take, right? So I'm, I'm a fan, right? But if there is a downside to Instagram, uh, it's that Instagram isn't really a, a very true reflection of reality, is it? Like you, you, you crop it, you edit it, you put up that carefully chosen photo, throw on a filter, and it looks, it makes us look a lot better than we typically are, a lot cooler, a lot more interesting, a lot more artistic even than some of us are. And so I, I have some illustrations kind of like, this is how Instagram makes us look, and this is how it is in real life. So this is your typical selfie on Instagram, right? She's got a fruity drink in her hand. She's by the pool. I want to be her. Selfie in real life. Typically something more like that, all right? So you can go to the next one, right? You got fatherhood on Instagram. Amazing moment. Fatherhood in real life, right? Mistakes, basically. Lots of mistakes. Kissing on Instagram. Isn't that amazing? They're going to live happily forever. I know it. Kissing in real life. Yeah, something like that. Kids on Instagram. Oh, man, no work at all. Right. Kids in real life. Yep. Music festivals on Instagram. That looks fun. I want to be there. Music festivals in real life. That happened. Yeah. It's not a pretty thing, those music festivals. Friends on Instagram. They love each other. They're having so much fun. Friends in real life. Something more like that. I've got a couple from my own life that I snagged real quick. Motherhood on Instagram. Megan didn't know I was doing this, by the way. Motherhood in real life. Something more like that. Bath time on Instagram. They're smiling. They're having fun. No issues. Go to the next one. Bath time in real life. Yep, that was back in the day. This is what happened every time Chloe would poop in the tub. There was chaos and screaming. And we snapped that photo because we were great parents. Um, all, right, all that to say, right, it's not reality. Right? They're very carefully chosen snippets of our lives that we choose for a variety of different reasons. We crop it, we edit it, we frame it, 
and we present to people how we want to be perceived, right? I want to be cool. I want to be good looking, right? Get that perfect selfie angle, you know, just right. When in my day, I'm looking good. Oh, not that side. This is my good side, right? And that's what we put out there for people to see because we want to be perceived in a certain way. And I have nothing against Instagram, right? But it can very quickly become just a very subtle way of pretending, right? It can very subtly become just another way, yet another way, of masking how, how we're really doing. How we're really doing. Right? And so it just causes me to ask the question, like, first of all, why do we feel the need to do that? Right? Not even moving away from Instagram now, but just like in life in general. Why is it that, why is it that we feel the need to constantly Instagram ourselves, crop, edit, filter ourselves before other people? Right? Why is it that we always, when somebody says, hey, how you doing? We feel an intrinsic need to answer that in the affirmative every single time. Even people who know us, even people who know we're not doing well. We're like, oh, good. Fine. Life's going well. Why is it in church, even in church, for some of us, especially in church, we feel the need to Instagram ourselves, filter ourselves, crop and edit ourselves, right, with one another, and for some of us, perhaps even to God, and put ourselves out there in a way that's just, if we were really honest, we'd have to admit it's not very honest. Why don't we feel the, the, the freedom to just admit, like, I'm not doing well right now. Like, life sucks right now. You know, like, I'm struggling. Like, I don't know there are weeks that I don't know that my marriage is going to make it in the long run. Right? right. Well, with what I'm walking through right now, there are weeks, there are months, or entire seasons where I'm so overwhelmed with feelings of inadequacy and stress and anxiety. Right? I'm having a hard time trusting God right now, believing in Him, trusting that He's good, trusting that He really cares about anything that I'm walking through. Why, why don't we feel free to at least just, just say... I'm not, I'm not doing well, right? I, I'm sure there's a number of different reasons, but I do want to suggest one this morning. And, and I wonder if part of the reason is not at least that, that for many of us, we don't have a very good theology of pain, at least not in circles like this, not, not in church. That when it comes to things like pain and, and suffering and crisis, we don't have a very good understanding of, of God and what following Jesus really entails. And I say this because I see Christians all the time that are walking through tough stuff, and then when they go through tough stuff, they're actually discouraged that things are hard right now, as if it's their fault, ultimately. And sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's not. Right? They, they feel bad for feeling bad, and then they feel guilty for feeling guilty. Right? Why, why is that? Right? Where, where does that come from? Right? And if I'm right, if, 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 if I'm right, I fear that we've bought into some myths when it comes to this whole Jesus thing, this whole church thing, that need to be busted this morning. Because my fear is, is if we don't, what's going to end up happening when life gets tough, not if life gets tough, but when life gets tough and the floor drops out and it feels like God is gone and you are alone, you're going to misinterpret what's going on. And when it happens to those people around you, you're going to misinterpret what's going on with them. Um, and you just might miss what is actually going on in that moment. And so if it's cool with you, for our remaining time, I want to bust five myths uh, that I fear a number of us have bought into. All right, so, so here we go. Number one, myth number one. Whenever God closes a door, he opens a window. You hear this? Yes, you have. I hear that. Whenever God closes a door... He opens a window. This one is typically shared by a well-meaning Christian. 
to somebody who's going through a really hard time. First of all, don't do that. Don't do that. If you've ever walked through a time that just is hard and it sucks, and somebody tells you this, don't you want to freak out on them? Right? Because it feels, even, even if you believed it to be true, in that moment, that's not what you want to hear. It feels too trite. It feels too easy. It feels too disconnected from the pain that we're walking through. So, so don't do that, for one. But secondly, it, it communicates something that, that is a myth, and it's just simply not true. Um, and that is that it suggests that there is, ultimately, there's an option out of what you're experiencing right now. Right? There's, a, there's a way out of this. You don't have to feel it. Right? It implies you don't have to walk through it. All you have to do is spot the exit. Right? It's there, which, by the way, puts all the pressure on who? You. Right? There's a window somewhere, I mean, if you're doing this right. So you better look harder, you better pray harder, and if you're not seeing that exit, right, it's your bad. You're just not looking hard enough, praying hard enough, or being a good enough person. Because if you were, there'd be a window out of this. And I wonder, is that really, really true? Right, and to attempt to answer this, I want to look at Matthew chapter 11. Right, and this is a, an account uh, where we find John the Baptist in a very interesting predicament. And he's asking a very curious question in the midst of it. And if you didn't grow up in church, you're not familiar with the Bible, John the Baptist, he's related to Jesus, right? a prophet, teacher, has disciples of his own. Um, he was a very effective um, and very uh, out there leader, very bold um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, eccentric. He was a very eccentric leader. Uh, you know the kind. All right, so, so here, here's what we find. This is what, what we find in Matthew chapter 11, beginning verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect somebody else? Right, this is a, the question itself is not a strange one. In fact, I guarantee that this is a question that we've all asked, or for some of us, it's a question that we're continuing to ask, right? Jesus, who are you really? Right? Are you, are you God or are you just a man? Right? Are you something more? Are you part of something that God is doing in this world? Are you the Messiah, specifically what he's asking, this promised one that we've all been waiting for? Or are you just a historical figure, a really talented carpenter, a really gifted leader, a very articulate humanitarian, something else, right? Who are you? Understandable question. The question isn't strange. What makes it strange is the person who's asking it, right? Because if you're familiar with the, the Bible, right, John the Baptist, this is, this is the guy who, when he was in his mother's womb and she walked into the room where Jesus was, he leapt, and this is the same guy who later on in life, when he had disciples of his own and he saw Jesus walking towards him, he turns to his disciples and says, Behold, right, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Does that sound like a guy who's confused at all? Right, the same guy who would later say, Look, he must increase, I must decrease. You guys need to go follow him. Does that sound like a guy who's confused? Right, Jesus, this is a guy who Jesus actually came to him and said, You need to baptize me. And John, who said about him, look, I, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. He says, no, 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 no. You need to baptize me. I have no business baptizing you. I'm not worthy. Does that, does that sound like a guy who's confused? I don't think so. He knows who Jesus is. In fact, the text just outright says it. He knew who Jesus was. He identified him perfectly. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So why on earth does he ask this question here and now? Right? And if we back up a little bit, we, we find our answer in verse 2. And it says this, it says, When Paul, who was in prison, heard what Jesus was doing. 
he sent his disciples to go ask him this question. Right, you see, John, John was a good guy. He had done everything that God had asked of him. He had been extraordinarily faithful and really obedient. And now he's in prison where he's waiting to be beheaded and he's wondering why God isn't going to come through for him. Right? And he's hearing about all these things that Jesus is doing and it all lines up with his understanding of the prophetic scriptures about this Messiah who was to come. And he's saying, I don't get it. Did I miss something? Did I do something wrong? Jesus, what am I missing here? And this is how Jesus responds to his disciples. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So Jesus says, I am who you believed me to be. I am who you testified to everyone about who I am. I am the one that you were to prepare the way for. I am that one. But John, you're going to die in that prison cell. Don't lose heart. Right, that is essentially what Jesus says to him. Right, so can I just ask you something here? Where's John's window? Right, if, if God opens up a window every time he shuts a door, where's his window? Right, because the door's shut, the door's locked. Right, and John is looking for a way out. I don't see a way out. And John won't find a way out. He, he is going to be beheaded. So where, where's his window? If there's any truth to that statement. Right, this, this week we found out that a family friend, who they are expecting a baby this fall, went in for a routine um, ultrasound, and they discovered that the baby had, has fluid on the brain. And they are predicting at this point that he or she is going to live. Uh, but there's going to be some serious brain development complications. And very likely this young child is going to require a lot of care for the rest of their life. Right, there's going to be some severe disabilities. Right, where's their window? Right, where's their way out of what they're walking through right now? You see, I, I fear that if we buy into that myth, right, first of all, we really cheapen what people are walking through. We gloss right over the pain. Right, but also we communicate that something that is simply not true. We say, hey, just look to your circumstances and you'll find a way out because God's providing one. Look to the circumstances. There's an answer there. Instead of pointing them to the one, the only one who can give them what they need in this moment, and it may not be a way out. It may just be what Paul says and describes in Philippians chapter 4 right, as the peace that surpasses understanding. The peace that surpasses understanding. Peace that doesn't make sense on paper. Right, the myth is that whenever God closes a door, he opens a window. But the truth is that God didn't promise an escape. He promises his presence. Right, God's greatest gift to us is not a window or a door or a way out. His greatest gift to us is himself. And as hard as it is, he's enough. He's enough. And sometimes it's in those hardest moments that we discover this for the first time. That peace that just does not make sense. That God is good even when circumstances suggest otherwise. Myth number two. With God's help, I can avoid most hardships. 
God's help, I can avoid most hardships. Right, so behind this myth is this idea that, you know, if you just have enough faith, God's going to bless you. Right, if you just believe enough, you'll have everything you need and probably most of what you want. Right, that if you're pure enough, spiritual enough, faithful enough, obedient enough, saintly enough, most everything is going to go well for you. Right, and this idea is captured uh, very well and expressed very well in what is many of ours, like, favorite verse, one of the most popular verses of the Bible, that is Philippians 4.13, and it says this, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Isn't that a good verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I, I used to recite this as a football player, basketball player, athlete, uh, ACT student, about to take my ACT, trying to channel the inner 4.13. Right? And even if you didn't grow up in, in church, I bet you it might have even rung a bell the moment I said it. And here's maybe why. Tim Tebow, Philippians 4.13, under the eyes. Right? That is July 27, 2007, Sports Illustrated, front cover. Right? This verse was popular long before Tim Tebow, but Tim Tebow gave it new wings. Right? For Tim Tebow, right, he could do all things through Christ who strengthened him. He believed this. I really believe that he believed this. Right? And for him that meant, right, I can win games. Through Christ who strengthens me. I can be a starting quarterback through Christ who strengthens me. I can be a professional football player through Christ who strengthens me. Um, you know, and that, we know that didn't work out very long um, for him. Right, but this is the way, by the way, this is just how we typically use it, right? It's like this mystical, like, power-up, mighty morphin time. You know, what? with God's help, I can do whatever I set my heart to. Um, it is one of the most popular verses in the Bible, but it's also one of the mi- most misused, misinterpreted, misunderstood verses as well. Right? Because we use it like that. And actually, I'm going to quote uh, somebody who, who many of you, you all know who he is. He's a pastor uh, from Texas, and um, I, he, I'm sure he's a really swell guy. I just disagree with a lot of what comes out of his mouth. Um, and I'm not going to say his name, um, but he is coming to the Pinnacle Bank Arena this fall. And his name rhymes with full Josine. But I'm not going to say his name. But this is what he says about this verse. Most people tend to magnify their limitations. They focus on their shortcomings. But Scripture makes it plain. All things are possible to those who believe. That's right. It is possible to see your dreams fulfilled. It is possible to overcome that obstacle. It is possible to climb to new heights. It is possible to embrace your destiny. You may not know how it all take place. You may not have a plan. But all you have to know is that if God said you can, you can. Right? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, this is typically how it gets used. This is typically how it gets used and gets interpreted. That this whole all things means that Christ could empower you to fulfill your dreams, climb new heights, achieve your goals. Right? Do you want that job promotion? You want to find your soulmate? Do you want better sex with your spouse? Make more money? No problem. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? All right. So I'm done making fun. I think we do really well to just remember where this verse is found. All right. First of all, this verse is found in Philippians, which is one of the prison epistles. Which means that when these words were written, it was not from a corner office of a guy who's dreaming about achieving his dreams, right, or setting goals for his career or his life. All right, this is from a guy who is in a first century ancient Near East prison cell. He's probably cold and probably hungry. He's probably been beaten and he is alone. 
Alright, so that alone should shape the way in which we read this verse on its own. Alright, but more than that, if we zoom out a little bit, you understand there's just danger in taking a verse and throwing it on a coffee mug. And this is one of those, right? Or a t-shirt. Um, or on a printed frame. Because we can so quickly make it what, mean whatever we want it to mean. But this is a letter, right? This is, this is a part of a paragraph, all right? It's a part of a bigger, a bigger idea that Paul is rolling out. And if we read the first verse, a couple of verses right before this, you start to get the idea uh, to, sh- to take shape. And this is, this is what it says, verses 11 and 12, right before this. And again, this is being written from a prison cell. He says, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. And then he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I love the way that Jonathan Merritt puts it. He says this. He says, Paul is not telling Christians that they should, they should dream bigger dreams. He's reminding them that they can endure the crushing feeling of defeat if those dreams aren't realized. He's not encouraging Christians to go out and conquer the world. He's reminding them that they can press on when the world conquers them. Right? He's not writing to this audience about, about blessing or avoiding pain. I mean, this is about endurance. He's talking about walking through the crap of life. He is writing to a bunch of people who he knows are going to suffer for their faith inevitably and maybe just maybe will find themselves in a prison cell like the one he's writing from. Right? And so if we were to project the meaning, what the big idea here, when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it would read a lot more accurate if it said, I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because that's what this verse is about. And I'll tell you, that's a lot less marketable, isn't it? Nobody's buying that coffee mug. Nobody's wearing that t-shirt. And Tim Tebow is not putting that underneath his eyes. I can endure all things through Christ who gives me strength. At least not as the starting quarterback of the Denver Broncos. Maybe now as he's dealing with his, his own dreams being crushed. Right, so the myth there is that with God's help, I can avoid most hardships. It's not true. The truth is, with God's help, I can endure not most, but all hardships. And they will come. Right, God is not a one who says, you know what, trust me, follow me, and I'll make sure you never have to go through anything hard. Right? He is the one, however, who says in Deuteronomy 31, 6, All right, Do not be afraid or terrified, for the Lord your God goes with you. And no matter how bad it gets, He will never leave you, and He will never forsake you. Myth number three. God will never give you more than you can handle. Have you heard this one? God will never give you more than you can handle. Uh, if anybody has ever told you that while you're going through something hard, I bet that didn't go very well, right? And this is one of, I don't know where we got this idea, but just experience alone, just the collective experience of everybody in this room exposes this for what it is, all right? Just out of curiosity, how many of you have found yourself at least one time in your life where you were at the end of your rope and you felt like, I can't take any more, all right? Just out of curiosity, how many of you, one time in your life you've been there? All right, look around. God will never give you more than you can handle. Uh Uh-huh. Right. False. I don't believe it for a second. Right? And in those moments, if somebody, like, I've been at those points where it just feels like there's no way forward. Like, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Right? God has abandoned me. I am alone. I don't even know how to move forward, let alone fix this. I don't know that I even want to try. 
And in those moments, if somebody comes up to me and says, well, God will never give you more than you can handle, I might have punched them in the throat right then and there. Right? It is so insensitive, and it is simply, it's simply not true. Perhaps we would do really well just to look at Jesus, which is always a great starting and ending point. But I, just let's remember together where Jesus was at right before his arrest and his subsequent murder and torture. Okay? This, is, this is what we, found, we find in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And going a little bit further, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Right? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, I might be crazy and going on a bit of a limb here, right? but if this is something that Jesus experienced, right, then maybe, just maybe, maybe God's primary business in this world is not making sure that you and I are never given more than we can handle. In fact, maybe, just maybe, obedience will inevitably lead us into situations where that's precisely where he takes us. Into places where we are in over our head and we are given more than we can handle. Right? And I say that even if for no other reason, if for no other reason just to point to the fact that if you are going through the crapshoot right now and life just, if you're really honest, sucks, that's okay. That's okay. That doesn't mean that you're doing this thing wrong because we all find ourselves there. Right? And this is the danger here. Is it implies this whole idea that God will never give you more than you can handle. It implies that when you find yourself in a position that you have now more than you can handle, there's something wrong with you. Right, God will get, never give you more than you can handle, so what's wrong with you? Right, but then we, we look at Jesus and we find that he was put in a position. Where that's exactly what he's saying. This is more than I can handle. Right, but God, not my will, right, but yours be done. The thing is, God never, uh, he never said that he'd never allow you to go through anything more than you can handle. But what he did promise right, is that if you're in Christ, you'll never have to handle anything alone. Right, the myth is God will never give you more than he, you can handle, but the truth is God will never give you more than he can handle. And the truth is that's an awful lot. Right, and, and the beautiful part about this and the counterintuitive part about this is when you find yourselves in, those, in that position, and you will, right, where you're given more than you can handle, right, and you're up to your neck in just what feels like pain and sorrow and misery and you're drowning in it, right, that you are, you are actually in that moment, as hard as it is, perfectly positioned to experience God in such a profoundly personal way. Weakness, I mean, pain has this amazing way of exposing just how weak we really are. Even though I think we we want to think that we're actually pretty strong most of the time, but it exposes us for how weak we are. But it's in those moments of weakness when God shows himself so strong. And maybe, just maybe, that's why 1 Corinthians 12, 9 says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul goes on to say, well, you know what? I'm just going to boast of my weaknesses then. Because it's when I'm weak that God shows himself to be strong in my life. All right, myth number four. God is the one behind your pain. God is the one behind your pain. Right, you see this fleshed out every time somebody walks through something hard, and I have. 
and you look to this guy and you say, why? How could you let this happen? Right? Why would you do this to me? Right? And I am not throwing stones. I have been there. I have had my own number of colorful conversations with God where I have called him all sorts of names and called into question his character. Right? But behind that is this assumption that, you know, he's the one behind this. And sometimes, like, we propagate this idea when we say things, well, everything happens for a reason. Right? I, I think it was Bill Murray who said, yeah, sometimes the reason is you're an idiot and make poor choices. You know? Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it has, it's not your fault. Sometimes it's the choices of other people. Sometimes we just can't find who to blame. Right? But don't blame, don't blame God. Right? Don't assume that he's the one that is making you walk through this or that he ever desired for you to walk through this. We, we can't forget that, you know what, when you go to Genesis and you see this world as God actually created it and intended it, you will notice there is no sin. Right? But when sin comes in, pain, death, suffering, cancer, all kinds of illness and heartache follows with it. Right, for some of us, like, that pain and that hard season is a direct result of the sinful actions of others. And we just need to remember that sin is never what God desires. It's, it was never what He intended. Right? And so when you're walking through pain and suffering, you've got to know that that was not God's original plan. And that's not what He intends for you. Right? The myth is that God is the one behind your pain, but the truth is, is that God is the one while not behind your pain, He is the one who is at work in your pain. Right? He is the one who sovereignly, like nobody else can, uh, I'm convinced of this, and, and please don't take this in like a heartless way. I know this sounds trite, especially if you're in a rough season. But I've, I am convinced that if there is any business that God is in, it is taking the mess that we create, or others create, the mess that this world often is, and and using it and transforming it into something beautiful and redemptive as only He can. I mean, that is, by the way, that's what the cross is. That is what the cross is. Jesus comes to rescue us and we kill Him for it. Right? It is, it is put on full display, the brokenness and fallenness and sinfulness of this world. And God takes that and uses it to usher in our own rescue and salvation. That is a business that God is in. And you've got to know that. This is why what Paul is communicating in Romans 8.28 when he says, In all things, God works for the good. In all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Not that he intends all things to take place. Not that he intends for you to hurt and to struggle and to suffer. Not that he intended for that person to get hurt or for you to lose them. But he can and he will use it for his good if you will let him. God is really good at that. Really good at that. All right, this is exactly what we find you know, the story of Joseph, if you're familiar with the Bible. This is what he says in Genesis 50. If you remember, he's sold away into slavery by his brothers who hate him, despise him, they want to be rid of him. There's nothing in the text that suggests that was God's idea, but that's what happened. And then God uses it to save thousands of lives. And this is what he says at the end of uh, Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, you know what? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. All right, that's, that's the business that God is in. You know, it's very interesting. When I think about the wisest people that I know, the most spiritually mature people that I know, people who live with more peace 
and more joy and live at a depth that very few people I've ever known enjoy, they are also the ones who have walked through some of the worst circumstances and have suffered the most. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Right, but the same is also true of some of the most angry and bitter and disillusioned people that I know. That they too have walked through some horrible, horrible stuff. Right, and the difference is that right, one looked at their pain and stayed there. And one began to actually look at Jesus and began to ask, you know what, what maybe does God, even though he didn't intend for me to walk through this, what maybe does he want to do in me right now? How, maybe, just maybe, could he use this horrible circumstance for his good in the future? Right? And so all that to say, please don't waste your pain. It is too costly. It costs you too much to waste. And in God's economy, nothing is wasted. Not even the worst of circumstances. Not even the things that he never intended for you to go through. Don't waste your pain. Don't waste your pain. Myth number five. Pain is proof that God is absent. And I would suggest to you, no, 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 pain is assurance that God is near. And maybe, just maybe, this is why Jesus says some very counterintuitive things along the way. Right? And he keeps saying things like, you know, blessed are the poor in spirits, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Right? And blessed are the the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Right? And maybe just maybe one of the reasons he says this is because there is something about pain that God meets us in, in ways that we can't experience or come to know in any other way. Or that something happens in suffering that strips us of our self-sufficiency or our feelings of self-sufficiency. There's something about hitting rock bottom that causes us actually to look up. And what we find is not a wrathful God that threw us down that hole, but a God who is down in that hole with us. And wants to help us and walk with us and love us through even the worst of circumstances. Maybe, just maybe. All right, so just just a couple final thoughts and I'm done. First of all, we should have this conversation. We need to have this conversation more. Because number one, you need to know it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. It doesn't mean your faith isn't working. It doesn't mean this whole following Jesus thing, you're doing it wrong. Sometimes life just sucks. It's okay to to not be okay. You don't have to Instagram your life or your heart before God. He knows how you're really doing anyway, and he can handle your honesty. I've, I've, I've pushed the limits on that one. And God is pretty good about honest conversations and handling your anger, your confusion, your disappointment, your hurt. Right? So, so don't Instagram yourself. Don't filter yourself. Don't edit yourself before God. Just be honest and unleash, right? You can't heal otherwise. It's got to start there. It's okay to not be okay. And and know this, by the way, there's a lot of suffering in the Bible. You know this? A lot of it. If you open up Psalms, long book. One third of the Psalms, of the songs that are written in there, the poems, they are called lament songs. Literally, putting words to anguish. One third of the entire thing. Right? The book of Lamentations, that's like the whole thing. It's like, life sucks, where are you, God? You know, and like every prophetic book in the Old Testament except one has at least one lament psalm where that man of God is struggling with who God is and how disappointing and absent he seems to be right now. 
All right, so just know if you're suffering, struggling, hurting, you are in very, very good company. All right, another myth that just needs to go away that's connected to this is this idea that the most faithful people suffer the least. Not true. In fact, when I look at history and I open up the scriptures, the bad news, just to put this out there and be honest, sometimes it seems like the most faithful people actually, they suffer the most. Even if God doesn't intend it. Because we live in a broken world, and our message is not one that's just openly and readily embraced by many. And so sometimes following Jesus will lead you right into pain. So just know, it doesn't mean you're broken. It's okay to not be okay. Sometimes faithfulness leads you there. And by the way, if you're hurting, know that you're not alone. All right, because if you follow our Instagram accounts in here, it's going to look like we all have it pretty much well together. Our lives are pretty awesome and cool. Right? That's the effect of Instagram. That's part of the reason we use it constantly. And I love Instagram. But it's not a true reflection of how we're really doing. In fact, there are people all around you right now that are hurting units. Even though they high-five you and smile and say they're doing fine, they're not. So don't buy into the lie that will be whispered in your ear telling you you're all alone. What's wrong with you? Things are hard. That's not true of everybody else. Some, clearly, you're messed up. No, we're all messed up. And there's others who are hurting, so please don't try to go at it alone. Church is supposed to be the place, not where you Instagram yourself, but where you can get honest. So just know, like, smiles are not expected and struggles are not surprising at Mosaic. This is not a place to filter yourself, edit yourself, and constantly just project yourself in a way that's just not becoming of who you really are. You can be honest here, okay? We won't do it perfectly, I promise, because the person sitting next to you is a sinner like you. Right? And we will mishandle it sometimes, but we'll ask for your forgiveness and we'll resolve to do it better moving forward. Okay? Um, also, you got to know, um, I probably don't have an answer to the why question. And neither does anybody else. I don't know why you're walking through what you're walking through. I don't know why you lost what you lost. I don't know. It's very possible that you'll never have an answer to that question this side of eternity. And so you just got to know, if you spend your life trying to answer the why, it could be a very long and fruitless road. There may not be an answer there. Not right now. All right, but the questions you can begin to find an answer to is who, who is God, God who is God, who is Jesus? What, what is he really like? And what maybe, just maybe, does he desire to do in you and through you, even in this horrible thing you're walking through that maybe he never intended to happen? All right, so we can't answer the why, but maybe, just maybe, the what and the who. Um, and I will say this. You've got to know also that we do not worship a God that is disconnected from pain, who has absolutely no idea what it's like to walk through what you're walking through right now or what you will walk through in the future. I love this. This is from another pastor or scholar. He says, Jesus is a God to whom you can speak personally. You can run to him and you can walk with him. Right? Jesus didn't sit back in his heavenly seat and from a safe distance give us mere counsel for suffering. Instead, he entered into human history to identify with, with us. He was tempted. He wept. He was poor and homeless. His family rejected him. His friends abandoned him. His disciples betrayed him. His enemies falsely accused him. The government unfairly tried and condemned him. The soldiers mercilessly beat him beyond recognition. He bled, he suffered, and died in shame. And he did it all for God's glory and for your good. 
And so you got to know he's near, he cares, and he's been there. Right? So reach out to him. And lastly, just lastly, I will say this. And then I promise I'm, I'm done. Um, you got to know that as, as hard as this season might be, or the season that you're coming out of, or the season you're about to go into, as trite as this may sound, and I hope it's not received that way, I don't mean it that way, you need to know that what you're walking through is very temporary. Right? That a day is coming when pain will be done for. Right? When suffering will no longer exist. Right? When, when bleeding hearts will be healed and every tear will be wiped from your eyes and the eyes of those people you love. Right? And I love the picture of this, and I'll end with this. Revelations 21. And this is what it says, talking about when Jesus returns once and for all. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Right? And He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And He who is seated on the throne said, I am now making everything new. All right, let's pray. Lord God, I know what it's like to walk through a season where there seems to be no hope, no way forward, no loving God that is talked about in spaces like these. And God, I know in those seasons, like hearing a message like this can be very hard. That when we are bleeding, the last thing that we want to do is sit and listen to a guy like me from a distance on a stage talk about how good God is while my life is so incredibly bad. And Lord God, so I, I want to acknowledge that because I don't want to be insensitive. And I don't want to come off trite. And I never want to be accused of offering easy answers that aren't real. But Lord God, even in that place, I ask for soft hearts. Or that it doesn't matter who, who I am, it matters who you are. It really doesn't matter anything I say, it matters what you have said. Of what you're doing, what you've done, what you desire to do. Even in the lives of those, it feels like it's over, it's done. My life is, is over. All of my dreams have been crushed. I just want it to be over. And Lord God, I ask that in this moment you would reach in and remind them that you're not finished with them. That you're not finished with this world. That there can be beauty brought out of the brokenness. That even in the, through the worst of circumstances that you never desired <clears throat> for them to walk through, Lord God, that you can bring about healing for others and healing for them and healing to a world that is bleeding. That you are the God who offers and can bring peace that makes no sense on paper. The peace that all of our circumstances speaks against 
the peace that looks absolutely impossible because God, that's, that's something that only you can do and I pray that over everybody in this room and everybody listening in, Lord God. And for those of us who are not walking through a hard season right now, I ask that you would give us eyes to see those who are and hearts that burn to show them how much you love them. To be a people that don't come with easy answers. Right? But that practice of nothing more than ministry of presence, of just sitting with people and weeping with them and hurting with them, of reflecting the God who weeps with them, the God who hurts with them, and the God who wants more for them. Help us to be that people and help us to be that church, Lord. So we come before you now from a lot of different places, living unique stories, but certainly a lot of hurt represented. And Lord God, as we sing these words and as we reflect on these words, Lord God, I ask that you would penetrate our hearts with those words and show us how real they are, even in the midst of affliction. And so Lord God, we come before you now as your people. 